be in the uh, 22nd chapter of First Kings, and it's um, there's some things that are, are really significant, I think, because um, it has to do with the consequences of, of lying and believing a lie. And it has to do with people asking for the truth when they really don't want to hear the truth. Sounds very familiar to today, doesn't it? Just a couple of things along this same theme before we get into the 22nd chapter. This is from a couple of years back, I think. It says, three students at Michigan State University were up visiting friends at Lake Superior State University in Sault Ste. Marie. They partied really hard over the weekend, and by Sunday they were so hungover that they could not make the drive back. Two had a biochemistry test on Monday that they missed. They called their teacher when they got back into the town on Monday and told him they had gotten a flat tire up north. The teacher responded very calmly and told the students to simply come in and take the test on Tuesday. The students were very happy with the understanding professor. When the boys came into class on Tuesday to take the test, the teacher had put the boys in separate rooms just so there would be no cheat, no cheating. The teacher trusted the boys, but he did not want them to have any temptations. The boys were fine with this. They knew the material. The first page had a difficult chemistry problem on it, but both boys figured the problem out. The boys turned to the second page, and there was just one question. Which tire? (laughs) (laughs) I can feel that one coming. (laughs) And about telling the truth, Says a small town prosecuting attorney called his first witness to the stand in a trial. A grandmotherly, elderly woman. He approached her and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, well, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a rising big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you are never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. The lawyer was stunned. Not knowing what else to do, he pointed across the room and asked Mrs. Williams, do you know the defense attorney? She replied, well, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. I used to babysit for his parents. Babysitting for his parents. And he, too, had been, has been a real disappointment to me. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. The man can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the shoddiest in the entire state. Yes, I know him. At this point, the judge wrapped the courtroom to silence and called both counselors to the bench. In a very quiet voice, he said, with menace, if either of you ask her if she knows me, you'll be jailed for contempt. <laughs> <laughs> Truth is an interesting concept. 
my intention at the beginning of this was to go through the lives of Elisha and Elijah. The way that God moved in the lives of these two prophets. And I do, to do it without interruption, but Scripture doesn't cooperate with this a lot of times. <laughs> because there's a lot of interruption. You know, for we read about the lives of and the activities of Elijah for a few chapters, and then all of a sudden he disappears for a chapter or two. And in chapter 21 that we did a few weeks ago, he was back confronting <coughs> King Ahab. And he confronted him with the judgment word of God. Now in chapter 22, he disappears again. I thought about skipping chapter 22 and going to the first chapter of 2 Kings where Elijah comes back into view again. But then I decided I didn't think I was qualified to go skipping around the Word of God and <laughs> leaving things out. And then the more I got into chapter 22, the more I realized that it was a good thing that I didn't. Let's look at the first few verses of chapter 22. It's a long chapter. The last number of verses, I won't read verse by verse because I realize Richard has a short attention span. <laughs> if we read verses 1 through 12, this is what it says. Three years passed without war between Aram and Aram and Syria and Israel. In the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting each on, the, on his throne, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chemanah, made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you will go, you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. All the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. 
chapter 20, we saw that Ahab, the king of Israel, had defeated the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad, and that the king, Ben-Hadad of Syria, had promised to return the cities that his father had taken from Ahab's father some years before. The two kings made a covenant, and one that evidently didn't, didn't mean a whole lot. Three years have gone by, and apparently Ben-Hadad had never returned the city of Ramoth-Gilead, and it was located in a strategic area, and Ahab wants it back. For the first time in a number of chapters, we read about the southern kingdom of Judah. Everything that takes place with Elijah is in the northern kingdom, the apostate kingdom. And now we see Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, coming into the picture. It always says the king of Judah went down. Judah is down here. Israel is up here. But you're always going down. And it's because Judah is higher elevation. So when you go to Israel, even though it's up north, you're going down. And that's the way they always talk about it. For the first time in a lot of chapters, again, we hear about the southern kingdom. We're really not told why he's there with King Ahab, but they forge an alliance. Actually, we do know why he's there, but only when we read the parallel account in First Chronicles, or excuse me, in Second Chronicles 18. The chapter in Second Chronicles is almost identical, even word for word in many places, except for the first three verses. And if you look at the first three verses in Second Chronicles, which are different, or actually giving you more information, what it says is, Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. Some years later, he went down to visit Aram, Ahab, in Samaria. And Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for him and the people who were with him and induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go up with me against Ramoth-Gilead? And he said to him, I am as you are, and my people is your people, and we will be with you in the battle. So they had met a treaty together, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, and they cemented it with the marriage <coughs> between Ahab's daughter, his daughter that he had with that sweet lady Jezebel, <laughs> and Jehoshaphat's son, and his son's name is Jehoram. You know, it's difficult to understand why a godly king like Jehoshaphat would give his son to marry a daughter of a pagan king and queen. But he did. That was pretty standard in those days. But obviously it makes no, no sense for a man of God to do something like this. At any rate, before Jehoshaphat goes to war, he wants to know God's will about the whole thing. So Ahab does what you would expect 
him to do. He calls in 400 of his state-supported prophets <laughs> who are guaranteed to tell him what he wants to hear. They know the king wants to take the city of Ramoth Gilead, and they're not about to tell him anything that he doesn't want to hear. Jehoshaphat's not satisfied. He knows Ahab's pagan history, and besides, when you get 400 people to agree on something, you get a little suspicious about the truth. And so he wants to know if there's not a prophet of the Lord that he can call. Ahab knows one of the Lord's prophets that he's got access to, and he's got access to him because he's got him in prison. <laughs> so he states that he doesn't really want to bring this guy because he hates him, because he always speaks evil about him. But he calls him. And while they're waiting for the prophet to come, the prophet of the Lord, the kings dressed in their robes are holding court at the gate of the city of Samaria. There was, this was pretty standard at the time. Gates of the city is where you held court. And so this is where they're sitting. And in the city of Samaria, there were even thrones in front of the gates of the city. So they're sitting there, surrounded by the false prophets, who are prophesying in the name of the Lord, but of course not truthfully. Ancient prophets normally or often used symbols when they were giving a prophecy. And this false prophet, Zedekiah, is no different. He makes horns out of iron to, to illustrate what he's telling the king, that two powerful armies will destroy the Syrians. So you've got two horns, two powerful armies are going to destroy Syria. And all the other prophets agree with him. And then we pick up in verse... 13. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your words be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. <laughs> and Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and succeed, and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. <laughs> and the king said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? you can hear the sarcasm dropping from Micaiah's lips. So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. 
And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets, all his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Then Zedekiah the son of Shinnah came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah said, If you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Listen, all you people. So into this court at the gates of the city, with all the royal robes and the drama of false prophets, comes Micaiah, the prophet of the Lord, in rags and chains, straight out of prison. The messenger that brings him has already admonished him to say the same thing that the false prophets have said. And Micaiah says he'll speak only what the Lord tells him to speak. But first, he can't resist mimicking the false prophets. Go up and triumph. The Lord will give you into the hand of the king. Ahab knows sarcasm when he hears it. He knows his mocking tone. And he demands that he speak nothing but the truth. And now Micaiah's tone changes from mocking to serious. And he says that not only will Israel be defeated, but that their leader, their shepherd, is going to perish. And Ahab's response is, See, didn't I tell you that he would never say anything good about me? Just evil. And then Micaiah goes on to reveal the inspiration behind the 400 prophets. He describes God's throne room with the Lord asking, Who will entice Ahab to attack Ramoth Gilead and die? And scripture says, a spirit came forth saying, I will entice him. And the spirit said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And God basically said, do it. So what are we supposed to make out of this scene in heaven? I'm not positive. The theologians are not positive. All we know is what we can discern from Scripture in general. You know, the prophet of the Lord clearly says, Now therefore, look. 
the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. First of all, this vision that the prophet has represents God in his total authority. So that even evil spirits are subject to his ultimate control. There's no question about that. God, in his sovereign control of everything, uses the forces of evil to accomplish his good purposes. Scripture sometimes speaks of God hardening people's hearts. Pharaoh in Egypt is a perfect example. It also speaks about God sending strong delusions sometimes. Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, uh, verses 11 and 12 read, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What we see in Scripture in Thessalonians and in Exodus, the Exodus narrative about Pharaoh, is God does this hardening only to those who freely harden their own hearts and will not believe the truth. God gives them over to a lie. The bottom line is that God is not promoting lying in, in 1 Kings, but he's permitting it to bring judgment on evil. God, for his own purposes, allowed Ahab to be deceived by evil spirits when he knows they're going to be used to accomplish his sovereign and goodwill. Ahab wants to be deceived, so God gives him what he wants. This false prophet Zedekiah responds to Micaiah's vision the way that many do when they're defeated in argument with violence. He slaps him and taunts him. And Ahab responds the way tyrants always respond. When they're confronted with the truth, he sends Micaiah back to prison. And Micaiah's final words is that he's willing to be judged by whether or not the prophecy comes to pass. And this is the last we hear of Micaiah in the scriptures. We don't know what happens to him. And this is typical of a lot of the prophets that you read about in the Bible. They're here briefly, and they're gone, and you hear nothing else about them. It's sort of, in a way, you can look at it as a sign to us that there may be a time where God calls you to do something that's only going to occur at one time. You better be willing and ready to do what God says when he says it. The time may not come again. Verses 29 through 40. So, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat king of Judah went up against Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. 
I would have been a little suspicious. <laughs> so the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. So when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, they said, Surely it's the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. When the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Syrians and died at evening. And the blood ran out, the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. <coughs> now the harlots bathed themselves there, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab, and all that he did, and the ivory house which he built, and all the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, became king in his place. Ignoring what the prophet Micaiah said, the king of Israel and the king of Judah go into battle against Syria. It's easy to understand why Ahab would ignore the Lord's prophet. He's never listened to him before. It's more difficult to understand why Jehoshaphat would ask to hear a word from the prophet of the Lord, hear the word, and then ignore it and go into battle too. He should have known that the battle would end in disaster. Micaiah had told him that, and he should have known that Ahab was going to be killed. He'd been told that too. At any rate, going into battle, Ahab doesn't want to be identified as a king and be a special target. That sort of indicates that he was afraid of Micaiah's prophecy. So he disguises himself. He even has the king of Judah wear his robes, hoping that if anybody gets killed that's a king, it's not him. So what's the result? Jehoshaphat saved, and Ahab dies in battle. The Syrians had been directed to focus their attack on the king, knowing that if the king dies, the troops will disperse, and the battle will be over. That's normally the way it went in ancient times. 1 Kings 22:32 just says, And Jehoshaphat cried out. But in 2 Chronicles, 1831, it makes it clear that God cares about him and saves him. It says, But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him, and God diverted them from him. You know, Scripture's often matter of fact, very to the point, 
without any kind of embellishment whatsoever. Now it says, a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel. Just shoots an arrow into the sky and it kills the king of Israel. It may have been random from the bowman, but it was not random from the Lord. It inflicted a mortal wound, wound on Ahab. Now Ahab's a, a, a very wicked king, one of the most wicked kings that Israel has. But cowardice in battle was not one of his faults. He has himself propped up in his chariot, and the whole day, the whole day, blood is seeping out of him, and he's getting weaker and weaker. But he's propped up in his chariot. But by the end of the day, he dies. The people see he's dying. He's dead. They go home. Battle's over. Micaiah's prophecy comes true. Ahab does not return to Samaria in peace. Instead, when they go to wash the chariot, the dogs lick his blood. This is almost the fulfillment of what Elijah had said. It came from the Lord in 1 Kings 21, where Elijah prophesies that dogs will, dogs will lick the blood of Ahab. It comes true, but not in the place that Elijah said it was going to come true. This seems to be because God relents of his original word against Ahab because Ahab repents, puts on sackcloth and ashes, which we saw in an earlier chapter, and goes around mourning. And then we find out it's a false repentance. It doesn't last. So God brings the judgment back on him about the dogs licking the blood, which changes the location. You know, by materialistic standards, Ahab, his reign is a success. He's mighty in battle, and he wins most of them. His, his kingdom is prosperous. He's successful in most everything he does. But spiritually, he's an absolute disaster. One of the worst kings that Israel's ever had. The rest of the chapter after these verses turns to Jehoshaphat and his reign. He's the son of Asa, who was a godly king in Judah, and Jehoshaphat is a godly king. He follows in his father's footsteps. The author of Chronicles makes it clear that God has blessed Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, but also makes it clear that Jehoshaphat has been a fool at times. Despite the great riches that God had blessed him with, which we saw in the first chapter, I mean the first verse in, in the Chronicles version that we read, he enters into a marriage alliance with Israel. He gives his son, Jehoram, in marriage to Ahab's and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. And she was as wicked as her parents. Later when Jehoram, Jehoshaphat's son, becomes king in Judah. It says in Second Chronicles, Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, not the kings of Judah, the kings of Israel. 
just as the house of Ahab, his father-in-law, had done. For he had the daughter of Ahab as a wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil is introduced into the southern kingdom by marriage from Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. He's as wicked as they are. And you see things change. So not only did Jehoshaphat give his son to be married to the wicked, this wicked pagan woman, he also made a military alliance with the most wicked king Israel had ever seen. Up to now, Jehoshaphat's walked in a, a righteous manner before the Lord. But now he entangles himself with an apostate. Evidently, he's overwhelmed by the riches he sees when he goes to visit Ahab. The banquet, the slaughtering of all these animals, the great wealth that he sees, and he falls victim to Ahab's wishes. In Second Chronicles, where it says, Ahab killed sheep and oxen in abundance for him, for Jehoshaphat, and the people with him, and persuaded him to go up with him to Ramoth Gilead. The Hebrew word translated persuaded is very strong. It's used in Deuteronomy 13 of enticement to apostasy of leading someone spiritually astray. This is what Ahab did to Jehoshaphat. Though Jehoshaphat is one of Israel's eight, I mean Judah's eight great kings and one of four of the reformers, he had lapses. He seemed to come from joining himself with ungodly people at times. First it was Ahab and then later on there was a brief alliance with Ahab's son. A prophet comes and rebukes him from this, and their joint venture is destroyed, and he repents and backs off. But he seems to do this from time to time. Ungodly unions bring ruin. They always do. Jehoshaphat barely escaped with his life in the battle a battle that he should have never been in to start with. He asked for a word from God's prophet, and then he ignored it and went with the majority ungodly opinion. You know, it's not unusual, I don't think, to hear people say, you know, I heard a sermon on Sunday, a message on Sunday, and I'm really disappointed because I don't know how this applies to my life. I mean, that was then, this is now. How does this help me live day to day? Well, if, if the message is from Scripture, I don't understand how people can say this. Mm -hmm. Because if you pay attention to what Scripture says, it tells you how to live and it tells you how not to live. And there are lots of things in these verses that tell you how not to live and what not to do and what you should do. What it says here is relevant to our own life. We see the consequence of embracing lies because we prefer what the lies say over what the truth says. 
We see the consequence of unholy alliance, whether it's marriage, whether it's business, whatever it might be. We see the danger of drifting away from the Lord by letting the glitter of the world attract us. We see that standing strong in the Lord may have deadly consequences. It did for the prophet of the Lord. You don't always get delivered. You don't always receive peace, joy, and quiet when you stand up for righteousness. And we see that God's word always comes true, that it never fails. We see that he's sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over evil. It applies to us. It hasn't changed. People haven't changed. The word of God penetrates if we let it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And I do pray, Lord, that it would penetrate our hearts and that it would cause us to, to see and love righteousness and to hate and run from a lie. And we ask it in the name of Jesus.